Please turn with you now to our sermon text in Exodus chapter 32. Exodus chapter 32, beginning in verse 1. Now when the people saw that Moses delayed coming down from the mountain, the people gathered together to Aaron and said to him, Come, make us gods that shall go before us. As for this Moses... The man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. And Aaron said to them, Break off the golden earrings which are in the ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people broke off the golden earrings which were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hand, and he fashioned it with an engraving tool and made a molded calf. And they said, This is your God, O Israel, that brought you out of the land of Egypt. And when Aaron saw it, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow is a feast to the Lord. And they rose early on the next day, offered burnt offerings, and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. And the Lord said to Moses, Go, get down, for your people, whom you brought out of the land of Egypt, have corrupted themselves. They have turned aside quickly out of the way which I commanded them. They have made themselves a molded calf, and worshipped it and sacrificed to it, and said, This is your God, O Israel, that brought you out of the land of Egypt. And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, and indeed it is a stiff-necked people. Now therefore let me alone, that my wrath may burn hot against them, and I may consume them, and I will make of you a great nation. Then Moses pleaded with the Lord his God and said, Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people, whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt, with great power and with a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians speak and say, He brought them out to harm them, to kill them in the mountains, and to consume them from the face of the earth. Turn from your fierce wrath, and relent from this harm to your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants, to whom you swore by your own self, and said to them, I will multiply your descendants as the stars of heaven, and all this land that I have spoken of I give to your descendants. And they shall inherit it forever. So the Lord relented from the harm which he said he would do to his people. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we barely know where to begin with such things. This is your word. We know, Lord, it will do us good. It will do us that which you have intended for it. Lord, truly it is an amazing thing that your people so quickly should turn out of the way into such gross idolatry. And Lord, that you should listen to this sinful man Moses intercede on behalf of the people. Heavenly Father, we pray that these wonders would mean something to us, that you would speak to us anew this day through your word and your spirit, and that, Lord, we would know something of you and of the Lord Jesus Christ, 
and that you would increase and bless our faith. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So we come now to this strange time in Exodus, Exodus chapter 32, and to the golden calf. It's an infamous and very traumatic incident in the history of Israel. But let me say, it is not just Israel's history, it is also our history. We as the covenant people of God, this is our history, no, no less than if this was actually written of your own family. This is something that is part of us. And just as it's good for us to reflect on what has happened over the last 10 years, we did that, didn't we, over lunch. We reflected on God's goodness and, the, and in fact, the trials as well over the last 10 years. It's good for us to know those things and to recall them and to consider them. So also it is good for us to consider such things that have happened to God's people over the millennia. And there are a few incidents that are more significant than this one. Now the setting is this. Moses has gone up, as you know, to the mountain for 40 days and 40 nights. And as you probably recall, he's left Aaron and her in charge. Aaron, his brother, and her, his, one of the other uh, assistant leaders. In Exodus chapter 24, it's been a while, hasn't it? Exodus 24, then the Lord said to Moses, come up to me on the mountain and be there, and I will give you tablets of stone and the law and commandments which I have written that you may teach them. So Moses arose with his assistant Joshua, and Moses went up to the mountain of God. And he said to the elders, Wait here for us until we come back to you. Indeed, Aaron and Hur are with you. If any man has a difficulty, let him go to them. So that was the provision set in place. And Moses has now been there for a while, probably towards the end of those 40 days and 40 nights. And then some wicked men come up with a terrible, terrible idea. He said in verse 1, Now when the people saw that Moses delayed coming down from the mountain, the people gathered together to Aaron and said to him, Come, make us gods that shall go before us. As for this Moses, this man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. Now I need not say that idolatry of any kind, the making of any kind of image as a representation of God or of any God is utterly Prohibited, and, and this was not something that they had forgotten about because it was so recently in their history that they had received such things. Yet, they flout them. And worse than that, worse than that, now is one thing that wicked men should rise up and seek to take the opportunity of Moses not being there at the moment to take control of this situation, to wrest it away, and to begin their insurrection. That is... Almost to be expected. What is, defies explanation is that Aaron would countenance and even agree to this. Aaron shows just how weak he is. Rather than immediately stamping out that idea and, and punishing these, these evildoers, he agrees to it. He accedes to it. Now, friends, I don't know where to begin with all that. To say it's happened, that's what happened It's an awful incident that shouldn't have happened, that shows us the sinfulness of man. It illustrates, among other things, what Calvin says, and we all confess that our hearts are indeed idle factories. And so it is with all mankind, even God's people. 
left to themselves, the thing that they'll come up with is some sort of idolatry. Now that changes over time. Maybe it doesn't look like golden calves today, but you can be certain that wicked human hearts are still churning out idols. It illustrates the sinfulness, idolatry of men, and the weakness of leaders, right? I, again, it's, it's inexplicable that God's people would turn away from the one true and living God to want to worship some, some creature, some, something that they made of their hands, but that the hand that should fashion that idol should be the, the brother of, of Moses, second in command of this great people, is utterly beyond explanation, other than to remind us that men are weak, And even those in leadership are weak and they desperately, desperately need to be prayed for and their hands to be strengthened, that they not succumb to their own natural weakness. Now let me say one more thing we see in this. We see the weakness and sinfulness of man, the weakness and sinfulness of the leaders. And and just like we saw this morning, it was no accident that the people all with one accord rush upon Stephen the martyr, whether in all likelihood Satan's hand was very directly upon them. So I doubt that such an insurrection could have happened entirely on its own without any supernatural help. We can be certain that even as all idolatry has at its root the worship of demons, that Satan put that idea in their heads and, and fostered it and enabled this thing to go forward. All under the ultimate providence of God we understand But so it is, the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent fighting one another. But if we see a little hint of that, we also see decisively. The final word is not given to Satan or to sin or to weak leaders, but the final and decisive word is given to God, but particularly in his use of a mediator. This sinful people deserve to be wiped out. And God said so. I'm not saying so. He said so. But Moses takes the part that he was given to represent Christ, to be the mediator between God and men, and pleads for the lives of these wicked people that had rejected him no less than they rejected God. And he wins. He wins. And friends, my point is very simple in this. The thing that I want you to remember at the end of this is if God listened to a sinful man such as Moses on something as as gross and as, as blatant as this complete idolatry and apostasy, friends, will he not listen to the risen Lord Jesus Christ, his own beloved son, standing or sitting at his right hand, making intercession for us? Surely he will. That's my point. Well, the title, children, is The Golden Calf. Golden Calf. Three points. A wicked initiative, a weak leader, and a strong mediator. A wicked initiative, a weak leader, and a strong mediator. So first, a wicked initiative. I'll read again from verse 1. When the people saw that Moses delayed coming down from the mountain. Let me just say that impatience is a great vice. 
We must learn to be patient because all of God's promises have to do with waiting for something. And if we cannot, if we do not learn to wait, this will lead us into all kinds of sin and trouble throughout all of our lives. When they saw that Moses delayed coming down from the mountain, the people gathered together to Aaron and said to him, Come, make us gods that shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. Well, how far do we even go to say this? Let me say they knew exactly what, went, what became of him. He said he was going up to the mountain to meet with God. Very clearly he was doing so. In all likelihood they could see, in fact, the evidence of the presence of God in that cloud and that fire there with Moses on the mountain. But because he was not there at the moment, they seized the initiative to do this work. Now, as I say also, this was strictly and explicitly forbidden in the second commandment. In Exodus 20, verse 4, You shall not make for yourself a carved image or likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them nor serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing mercy to thousands to those who love me and keep my commands. Now, there are different layers and different kinds of um, degrees of idolatry. There's the absolute worst in which you make a god, let's, you make some statue and you call it Baal and you worship and serve Baal and not the Lord. That's the worst kind and obviously that is very strictly prohibited. But there is also then the making of some sort of figure, some sort of image of which you intend to worship the living true God through it. Right? And that is also prohibited in this. That is apparently the degree, that, that category of idolatry is more or less what's going on here. Because it, it's, it's actually, Aaron says, I'm going to make a feast. Tomorrow is a feast of the Lord. And, but the, the way that he wor- decides to worship God is not through the means that he's given. It's not through the Puritan regulative principle, but rather through the means that he's invented with his own hand of this golden calf. And friends, that's no, no less problematic. Okay? They didn't call this thing Baal. They called it the Lord. But that doesn't save them. That doesn't make it any better. Right? Because the Lord has said he cannot stand that anyone should ever dare to make an image like this and attempt to worship. And I would say, beyond the gross idolatry and the middle kind of idolatry, there is a basic prohibition simply of making such a thing. Right? And I'll say this again because it has to be said over and over again, and that includes children's Bibles. Right? It is, doesn't help us when we say, well, we're not going to put it here in front and worship it. Right? God didn't say only the prohibition applies to if you actually worship using it. It's just making any representation of God. Now, if Jesus is not God, then feel free to put him in your children's Bibles. But if Jesus is God, you dare not do it. Right? It's pretty simple. And these people, of course, flouted all these things. Why? Because, again, that's what's in the heart of man. That's the default setting. In fallen mankind, what is in our default setting is idolatry. And that's what comes forth. We don't want a religion of an unseen spiritual God who speaks to us and we we worship him through the means that we've been given. It all center on the word of God. Even the sacraments center on the word of God. 
But we want images. We want things that we can see with our eyes. And so every false form of religion in various ways succumbs one way or another to to various forms of idolatry. And false forms of Christianity do as well. Now, as I say, this is the wicked initiative. It only says to people that you can be absolutely certain that there were some who had the leading role in this. We know that. And they stirred up the people, just as there were some who stirred up the people. We know that the the leaders, the Jewish leaders, the Pharisees, stirred up the people and led them. They were as cheerleaders, calling on the people to, to chant, crucify, crucify. We're reminded then of the wicked influence of peer pressure, of the crowd, of the vox populi crying out for such things. And, and young people and, and students, I will repeat this. Do not give in to peer pressure. The great struggle, struggle of your time of life is precisely to resist peer pressure. God has said, do not follow a crowd into sin. If you follow, if you, if you succumb to peer pressure and you do something or think something or say something that is sinful, you're not excused for that. It actually is made worse because God has expressly prohibited you from following a crowd to do evil. All right? It's not a mitigating factor. It's the opposite. So the people, there are leaders among them unauthorized leaders who are stirring up these people and the peer pressure then comes and now Aaron is faced with this. What is he going to do? Right? The people have a wicked initiative. But secondly, we see a weak leader. A weak leader. Verse 2, and Aaron said to them, Break off the golden earrings which are in the ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. Now, let's stop just for a minute. Where did they get that gold? Do you know? They got it from the Egyptians. Because they were slaves, they didn't have these things. They didn't have gold. But on their way out, they received gold, just as God had promised from the beginning that you were going to plunder the Egyptians. And that's just to the glory of God. Through the glory of God that happened in the first place, that he could do such a thing, But then it's to the glory of God for the good purpose, which we know good and well. What is being explained right now? As Moses is up on the mountain, what we've been going through in the book of Exodus, it is a tabernacle. This glorious tabernacle, a provision, a gracious and glorious provision for the people of God that they should meet with their God. A place of mercy, a place of beauty, a place to meet God. And that's what the gold was for, primarily. And now Aaron brother of Moses tells him, break that off, that gold that was designed for the glory of God, and let's melt it down, and we'll turn it into an idol, an abomination. So all the people broke off the golden earrings which were in their ears and brought them to Aaron, and they received the gold from their hand, and he fashioned it with the engraving tool and made a molded calf. And we see what a mockery it is, isn't it? of the whole concept of, of Bezalel, the, the skill that he, that he was going to be filled with the Spirit. He was going to be a gifted artisan in order to make beautiful things for the tabernacle, for the glory of God, and for the service of God's people. And now you have, you have Aaron as, as a wicked inverse of that, filled maybe with some other spirit, somehow given the ability to make this golden calf. I don't know where he got the artisanal ability and skill, but it wasn't a good place. 
And they said, This is your God, O Israel, that brought you out of the land of Egypt. And see here again, we don't know for sure exactly what they have in mind, but one thing you can be certain, as they're pointing to the golden calf and saying that this is your God that brought you out of the land of Israel, that is the heart of idolatry. You want to know what idolatry looks like? It is ascribing to anyone, anything other than God, the things that belong to God himself. The living God, the Lord brought them out of the land of Egypt. And let me just say, by the way, I've just mentioned that in the wicked heart, fallen heart of man, that our natural tendency is to to, uh, sort of dispense with the spirituality and the faith of our religion, and we want something that we can see, right? Now, God in his goodness had, in condescension, had provided them with the glory cloud. Right? A cloud to go before them by day and a pillar of fire to go before them by night. And so that they, in their weakness, lest they lose the plot along the way, God had condescended to grant that to them. So they had seen the God that had led them out in that glory cloud. Not face to face, but they had seen. And now they say, now they ascribe to this golden calf, the work of their hand, something that belongs to God. His redemptive activity. The God that brought you out of the land of Egypt. And when Aaron saw it, so when Aaron saw it, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow is a feast to the Lord. And they rose early in the next day, offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. So there they are taking the very things that God intended for his own worship and diverted to the worship of this golden calf, which they... Aaron, in some half-hearted way, says this is, a, this is yet a, a festival, a feast to the Lord. Now, let me say, Aaron's weak, really weak. And in all likelihood, this just didn't happen suddenly that one day. But on day one, they saw that Aaron was weak. And day two, they saw. And day three, and day four, and the people are watching him, especially those who had some grudge against Moses, especially those who were wicked and unbelieving and didn't like the Lord Lord God of Israel and who wanted in their hearts to return to Egypt. They saw that Aaron was weak. And he demonstrated that. And he fostered an environment, what we'd call in the Marine Corps, a command climate that demonstrated his weakness as a leader. And we see some hint of that in verse 25. Now when Moses saw that the people were unrestrained, for Aaron had not restrained them to their shame among their enemies. Aaron hadn't restrained them. You see the reality of his weakness. And we'll consider his response to Moses' confrontation perhaps next time, but let me say it was exceptionally pathetic. This was hardly... A, a, a manly confrontation which he owned up to his role, his awful role in all this. But it was the most pathetic excuse, even more so than what Adam and Eve gave in the Garden of Eden. He was weak. And let me say that Aaron was not alone in being unfit to lead, right? Not everyone is gifted to lead. And we should be reminded, therefore, that good leaders are a particular blessing of God, and look, if that whole people, God, this is no accident. God is the one who had, had given them this particular set of leaders, called them to do that. But if this could happen to, to them back then, surely it could also happen today to us, right? We desperately need to pray for our leaders. 
Because in ourselves, I doubt if any of us are any better than this man, Aaron. And so in Judges 5.2, when leaders lead in Israel, when the people willingly offer themselves, bless the Lord. And if anybody should at any time really understand the blessing of good leaders, it's probably the people in Judges. Right? They saw firsthand what bad leadership looked like. And they could bless the Lord when leaders lead in Israel. And friends, let me say, let's bless the Lord when leaders lead in Israel. Pray that God continually lead and, and raise up men to lead. And more so, that God uphold men in strength to lead wisely and boldly and truthfully. So, Aaron, well, it'd be one thing if the people in their wickedness would come up with this very wicked initiative. But unfortunately, Aaron was a weak leader and did nothing to dissuade them from it. And the people, I want to say, are on the brink of utter disaster. Okay? But we had this third point. Strong mediator. Well, in verse 7, the Lord said to Moses, Go get down. For your people, whom you brought out of the land of Egypt, have corrupted themselves. They have turned aside quickly out of the way which I commanded them. They have made themselves a molded calf and worshipped it and sanctified, sacrificed to it and said, This is your God, O Israel, that brought you out of the land of Egypt. Again, this is the sad irony at the very moment that the living God is meeting on the mountain with Moses in order to deliver the moral law. So they are at that moment plotting against him, setting up idolatry, and Aaron is complicit in all of these things. It's unbelievable. But notice what the Lord says in this moment. Your people, Moses, your people. I don't think that was accidental. I think that was important for Moses to be reminded at that moment of his role, that these were his people. So the Lord goes on to say, and, and indeed this is an interesting proposal. So the, the people, the wicked people, come with their wicked initiative to a very weak leader, right? That, that anybody should have immediately turned down because it was inherently wicked and there's nothing good in it. But Aaron in his weakness succumbs to it. And now the sinless living God comes in another way to Moses. Listen. And the Lord said to Moses, I've seen this people, and indeed it is a stiff-necked people. Now therefore, let me alone. That's the idea. God in his, his, his sovereignty and, and his wisdom is floating, as it were, an idea to Moses. Let me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them, and that I may consume them, and I will make of you a great nation. Now let me say that God's wrath burning hot and his wrath consuming wicked people, that's not theoretical, that is actual. That is what happens to each and every sinner who dies outside of Jesus Christ. They rightly suffer the wrath of God for eternity in hell. And so it would not be a particularly special case. The only thing special in this would be, of course, that he would rain this down at that very moment upon them. And they richly deserved it, friends. They so dishonored their God in this way. Unbelievable. And God has certainly in past, in, in, in the great flood, done such things. Well, if Moses was weak, 
he would have succumbed. If he had failed to do what he was called to do and required a great amount of strength and self-discipline as well as compassion and love for his people, then he would have said, that's, that's a good idea, Lord. Make me a new people. These people are wicked. But he understood his office. He understood what he was called to do, to be a mediator between God and men and to plead for his own people, that though they were wicked, though they were sinners, and they didn't deserve even to have Moses, yet they were his people. And so he pleads for their lives. Verse 11 A strong mediator pleads with the Lord his God and says, Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people whom you brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? That's a silly question, Moses. It's because they're involved in the grossest sort of idolatry. But Moses is making a point that these are the ones that he has particularly redeemed from the land of Israel, or from the land of Egypt, with great power and with a mighty hand. This is his work of redemption. He can't, what if he does it? What if he erases this work of redemption? It's contrary to his glory to do that. Why should the Egyptians speak and say he brought them out to harm them, to kill them in the mountain and to consume them from the face of the earth? This is his public reputation. This is the name of God that is glorious and Moses knows this. And it is his right, God-given, Holy Spirit-inspired instinct To bring before God his own holy reputation. Because friends, don't forget that the whole work of creation, the whole work of redemption are there for the glory of God. It is not for your convenience or my convenience. It is for the glory of God. And the ultimate rationale of all these things is, Lord, for your namesake, for your glory, save your people. Uphold the work of redemption that you've begun. So turn from your fierce wrath and relent from this harm to your people. Now, and, and he doesn't stop there. He, he speaks of his, the, re, the redemptive work that he's done. It speaks, he speaks of his reputation among the nations, among the Gentiles that would suffer were this to happen. And then he comes in for the kill as he wrestles with God using the very things that God has put in his hand in order that he might wrestle with him. He says, remember... Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants, to whom you swore by your own self. Because he could swore by no greater. He swore to them that I will be your God and the God of your children for a thousand generations. The rest of time. He said by yourself, and said to them, I will multiply your descendants as the stars of heaven. And all this land that I have spoken of, I will give to your descendants. And Lord, if you were to consume them, you would prove that you have not upheld your word. That your promise was not good. How could you do that? And that's the end of the discussion. That's the end of the discussion. So the Lord relented from the harm which he said he would do to his people. And friends, you need to understand just how significant and important that is, right? Because if there ever an incident in which you might say, well, I know that God did make a promise to save them, but this time they went too far, and unfortunately, this probably could happen again to us, because that's the right logic, right? That had Moses not succeeded in his logic in wrestling with God in prayer, 
and serving the part of the mediator and God had wiped them out in his wrath, then you and I today would say, I think we're okay for this level of sin, but if we ever make ourselves a golden calf and bow down to it, then that's it. My friends, that didn't happen. It didn't happen. And, and, and Moses is not abraded. He is not rebuked for the boldness of what he said. God has already said, leave me alone, Moses. Now there's an inf- implicit invitation, isn't there, for him to do his job as a mediator. Leave me alone, Moses, so I can wipe out this people. And he goes in there with the greatest boldness, absolutely unsparing, and says, you swore that you'd save this people. You swore that you'd give them the land. You must do as you've promised. You must do it. And he listens. Friends, if Moses could do that, think of what his own beloved son can do for us. Do you really think that there is ever any intercession that he brings before the Father that is not answered? Moses had nothing to plead. He had his promises that you and I can plead. He had nothing greater than what you and I have. And he still won. He, was, he and his people were saved. Jesus Christ has, has his blood. This, the blood that he has shed. His, his hands that still have the holes as he's pleading before the Father. There are the scars. And that blood speaks powerfully. As he intercedes on our behalf. And he never fails. And be as wicked as we might be in our hearts are. And the most terrible sins that God's people could ever commit. Yet those who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord relents from the wrath that would otherwise be due. Because it fell on the Lord Jesus Christ. And Christ knows that. He knows that. And another people of, of God in their worst moment. Past, present, and future, Jesus Christ died for your sins. If you are in Christ, died for his sheep. He knows how how wicked and how dirty we are. And his blood speaks powerfully on our behalf. So friends, the application is obvious that we should entrust ourselves to this mediator. Hebrews 7.24 says, But he, because he continues forever, has an unchangeable priesthood. Therefore he is also able to save to the uttermost those who come to Christ through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Friends, I grow every single day in my appreciation for this intercessory work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Maybe that's true with us all. We begin coming to, by the gospel of grace through faith alone. We understand that we believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and we're saved. And that is our justification. And, and as it were, we, we don't even know that there's something else that goes on. But no, you see, that's the beauty of it. It's, it's not just that he has done this once in time. And he has certainly brought us forever to eternal life in that. But he ever lives to make intercession for us. So that moment by moment we have this intercessor. I am so thankful for those of you who say you pray for me every day. That is wonderful. And why I try as much as I can to pray for you. The elders are called to pray for you. And how thankful we are for human intercessors. 
I mentioned, there's a, a man every time I go to Twin Lakes, he points out that since the last time we met three years ago, I've prayed for you every single day. And that is a blessed and wonderful thing. But friends, how much more so that the Lord Jesus Christ does so in the very presence of the Father. And that's what Stephen saw. As he saw the heavens open, what is there? It wasn't a play-acting scene. The heavens were open so you could see what is always there. And there is the risen Lord Jesus still in his human body, still with his scars, and he is making intercession for his people. And he always wins. Because God wants him to. That's his job, and he never fails. Entrust yourself to this mediator, not just once, but forever, every single day. Entrust yourself to Christ. And secondly, pray for your leaders. Pray for your leaders. We, we see the results of poor leadership, and it, they're disastrous. Look, I mean, we are so thankful. What, what this highlights is just the immense power of the, of the, of the, the mediator, mediatorship that, that Moses held, as it were, as a type of Christ. But we see what could have and what otherwise should have happened because of this poor leader, Aaron. Well, friends, again, if that could happen to Israel, it could happen to us. And therefore, we should pray for our leaders. Pray for me. And pray for all of the elders and deacons that we would be upheld in wisdom and strength and faithfulness and courage because courage is needed, right? Aaron was a coward. He may have otherwise been a well-intentioned man and we know that he was gifted in various ways. And maybe this is a moment of weakness, but it was too big for him at this moment and in his cowardice, he failed not just himself but, and his brother, but all of Israel. And they almost, were almost wiped out because of it. Friends, pray for your leaders. They need it. And finally, I would say again for the young people, for yourselves, children, you must resist peer pressure. You must. Now, we say that this happens in, in schools, and it does, okay? That's a stereotypical situation where everyone's crowded together in, a, in a giant groups of 30 or 40 of themselves, sometimes much greater. And in such situations, there is a powerful desire to conform to the people around you. You're being, as it were, a sheep. And instead of always being led effectively, sometimes the sheep sort of lead themselves, And it's normally the lowest common denominator situation. We have to be very careful for that. I've said, again, how that when I, in my age, when I was made a sheep at uh, at an army training center, that I felt the pull of peer pressure. It's not imaginary. It's strong. But you must make it your business in your youth to fight against these things. As as I said, it's stereotypical in these institutional settings, in schools and universities, the military, but friends, it even happens in families and in the church, right? Wherever you're gathered together on your own, as it were, not under immediately the, the leadership authority, the authority structures that God has put in place for your benefit, their peer pressure just might rule the day. 
and ordinarily it's not to the good. Now we can pray that God would raise up leaders, peer leaders, young people who set good examples and, and resist these things, and that's what we should do. But we also must recognize that very often we are being pressured to do things and to act in ways that are not pleasing to God. If it could happen to Aaron and the Israelites, again, it could happen to us. I pray that we resist, all of us, pure pressure. Let's pray. Gracious and loving Heavenly Father, you are so merciful, merciful beyond our imagination. It is an amazing thing that you should be so merciful to such a wicked people that almost spit in your face the very moment that after you've redeemed them and rescued them from slavery and you provided for them bread from heaven, they took the bread from heaven, they used it for energy to make idols to bow down and to worship them and to dance and to be unrestrained in their sin before you. Lord, as we see ourselves portrayed in our weakness, both as people and as leaders, we see something else. We see the supreme power of Christ the mediator, of which Moses was only a picture, only a shadow. Lord, we know that your promises are so unconditional And you have set in place this whole great uh, plan of redemption that everything that could possibly be there is, is in place. Not merely that Christ should redeem us, but that Christ continually intercedes on our behalf. We know that you ever hear. If he ever lives, then we know that he does to make intercession, so you always hear him. And none of his intercessions fall on deaf ears. But Lord, his Blood pleads strongly before you, and Lord, so we are upheld. And Lord, this is not at all. As we celebrate and give thanks for these ten years, the fact that we are still here is not because we are so wonderful. But Lord, we have been upheld by a strong mediator, and we give you thanks for him. We ask it in his name. Amen.